0: Good morning. Thank you, music team, for leading us so well. Philippians chapter 2, new chapter, same page. You can find it on page 981 in the Pew Bible. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, kind of. We're actually going to really just look at verse 1, to be completely honest. Um, But I encourage you to open up and follow along in the text. You need that before you. My words are supposed to come from that word. So open it up and follow along. There. Paul is writing this letter to a group of people that he loves dearly. We saw in verse 8 of chapter 1, he calls on God Himself to witness how much He yearns and longs for the Philippians with all the affections of Christ. This letter reads differently than many of Paul's other letters. This is no Corinthian or Galatian situation where Paul has a whole lot of things to correct. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing to correct. Uh, The Philippian church seems to be a good, healthy church, but it's not a perfect church. And Paul is now beginning to turn and address maybe some of the potential problems that are starting to rear their head in the church. And he starts off focusing heavily on unity. We're going to look probably next week at why unity is so important and how that is Possible, But Paul is starting to pick back up on something that he's already mentioned for us back in 127. Remember two weeks ago, we looked at our call to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we saw that the gospel both demands and produces a certain way of life. It's a life that corresponds with that gospel. It adorns it. It's consistent with it. But when we think manner of life worthy of the gospel, we almost always think individualistically. We think about our own personal holiness. We think about our own spiritual disciplines, which are, yes, part of a worthy life. But as we saw, it's not at all what Paul talks about as key to a worthy life. And so we looked in great detail at whatever such a life is. It must and always be something worthy. Corporate. A life worthy of the gospel is the corporate life. You cannot fulfill God's purposes for you alone. So Paul wants this church standing firm in one spirit. He wants them with one mind, striving together, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul wants them together. He wants them united. So the Christian life is the corporate life, is the united life. Last Sunday, man, it was a wonderful uh, Sunday. So many good things, great food and great fellowship, a great word from Mike. I'll uh, be praying for Mike right now. He couldn't be with us today. He's preaching at North Shore uh, today, so we're praying for Mike. Um, but I was most excited and encouraged last week by the privilege of bringing in the Broomers as new members of the church. I love church membership. It's a celebration, first of the grace of God in their individual lives, in rescuing them and redeeming them, but then also in the grace of God in the corporate life of the church and uniting us together with them. But if you were here, I opened up by reading for us the church covenant. Don't just forgive me. The church covenant's great. I love our church covenant. It's good. There was one little part that bothered me while I was reading it, and I neglected to talk about it at that moment because it wasn't the time. Um, But I wouldn't mind tweaking one little thing in our in the church um, covenant, the covenant's what we're all agreeing to do when we unite together as members of the church. It says maintain the public worship and ordinances of the church. Gather together, uh, meet, give to maintain the church and spread the gospel. And the last part says endeavor to live individual Christian lives. That's excellent. That's good. That sounds like the manner of life worthy of the gospel of verse twenty-seven. But. As I was reading the covenant for you last week, it just kind of struck me that there wasn't a whole lot corporate in the covenant of our corporate church. We can't live individual Christian lives without the corporate life of the church. But we do need to do that, but we can't do that alone. That's the whole point of what we've been Looking at there's another uh, covenant of a church that I like and I was reading through it after starting off by rehearsing the grace of God. The first thing it says is this. We will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully encourage and entreat one another as occasion may Require. You see how other, focused, and corporate that is? I think it's really helpful. It's emphasizing the unity. It's emphasizing together. It's emphasizing one another. Right. When we join the church, we're not just saying we'll show up on Sunday and we'll give some money if we can. And I'll try to be a good person. No, we're saying we will take responsibility for one another. We will be together and we will care for one another. We will bear one another's burdens. We will unite our lives together for the glory of God and for the good of one another. That's what Paul says is a manner of life worthy of the gospel. It very much is something corporate. something to think about with our covenant. I'll, I'll get back to you on that later. But the point is that you cannot be a follower of God and not be a fellowshipper with the people of God. You cannot be a Christian without the church. But it is possible to be physically together, but not spiritually together. It is possible for there to be disunity and discord and division in a gathered church. And so Paul now turns to one of the main emphases of his letter, and he calls the Philippians, and thus us, to unity. That's what this whole section of the letter is about. But before we can get to that call to unity, we need to first figure out the basis of that call, how unity in our, man, watch the news, right, in our super-divided world, in our super-diverse world queen super diverse church how is unity even possible Well, in verses one through four if you look at it there are three main parts to this short passage verse one is part verse two is part and then verses three and four are part i had these grand plans uh, plans that were obviously wishful thinking to do the whole thing in one sermon that's silly Uh, this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible, So I decided Friday afternoon to pump the brakes. We're going to go slow. You could have either been here until about 1.30 or I could split it up. Uh, so you're welcome. So one through four for the next two weeks. This week, honestly, we're going to look at verse one and the beginning of verse two. In verse one, we're going to see the motivation that comes from the wonderful blessings, grace to us in the gospel. And then verse two is actually the main call. It's the one command of the whole passage. In the Greek, there's one imperative. There's one command. And Paul says, complete my joy. Stop. That's as far as we're going to get, which is good. Because remember our big idea for Philippians. We're looking at gospel-generated joy. Not just joy. Philippians is not just about joy. It's about the gospel. And how the wonderful good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ then generates joy. Well, that's the same thing that's going on in the beginning of this passage. Paul is going to say, because of all of this, verse 1, because of the wonderful benefits of the gospel, verse 2, joy. That's what we're going to do this week. Then next week, we'll come back and look at one of the key components of gospel joy as Paul calls the Philippians to unity in light of the wonderful gospel truths. Verses 3 through 4 are the practical how of unity. And he's going to tell us it's unity happens through humility. Two of my favorite, most challenging verses count others more significant than yourself. You don't do that. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You don't do that. And I don't either. These verses are really, really important. That's what humility is. That's how unity happens. But we first have to see how such a wild command is even possible. So here's verses 1 through 4. It's the Christian life. Is a corporate life of unity with the people of Christ, loving one another in the humility that comes only from the gospel of Christ. And all of that produces joy in Christ. Unity is based on humility, humility is based on the gospel, and all of that creates joy. So, gospel and joy this week. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there love? Is there fellowship? Is there affection? Is there sympathy? Christian, do you realize and rest in the realities of what you have in Christ? Paul is not just going to scream at us and say, be humbled, be united. He's going to first tell us why. He's first going to point us to Christ. And so I want you to first see the infinite blessings that you have in Christ and then let those be what motivates us to the unity and the humility next week. So let's, let's read it first. Let's read it, and then we'll jump into verse 1. I'll read all of 1 through 4. Keep in mind we're focusing on 1 in the beginning of verse uh, 2. Um, but this is God's word uh, for you today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If you would, bow with me, and let's let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we read, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. So now we come confessing that, we come humbly confessing that you can do something, uh, believing in the promise that your word does not return void, believing in the promise that your word is living and active. So Father, we ask now that your word uh, would do its work in our hearts. Father, I cannot accomplish what I want accomplished here, but I know that you can, and so we ask for you to work. Father, dissolve our hearts in thankfulness because of the wonderful truths that we have before us here in your word this morning. We ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to spend most of our time on the gospel again. Why? Well, Paul, remember, has used the word five times in chapter 1. But he doesn't mention it at all in our passage. So why are we again talking about the gospel? The good news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners. Well, because that's what verse 1 is all about. Verse 1 is the unbelievable benefits given to us in the gospel. Look at how Paul starts our passage. He starts first with, So, or your translation may say, Therefore, Remember how important these little connecting words are. We're not just looking at an isolated couple of verses. This is all connected. Just forget the chapter 2. That kind of acts like we're doing something new or different now. No, it's all connected. Paul is building argument, What we're about to look at is directly connected to what we've previously looked at. He's already introduced the importance of unity in one twenty-seven. That's what a manner of life worthy of the gospel is going to look like. The church, together, engaged in Paul's same conflict, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, he says, in light of all that, verse 2, actually, verse 2, Hold that verse one thought, because all of verses one through four in the Greek is one big, beautifully complex sentence. And in that one big, long sentence, there is one big main verb. And in the Greek, there's actually only one command, one imperative in the whole passage, and it's the beginning of verse two. So, in light of all of 127 through 30, the corporate steadfast struggle that is the manner of life worthy of the gospel, in light of all of that, do this one thing, complete my joy. And so, before we get to the gospel, we've got to start with We're going to start with joy, focus most of our time on the gospel, and then come back and end with joy. Because joy is the main thrust of the passage. Everything else is adorning that and explaining this command. We're going to spend all of our time next time talking about unity and humility. But they aren't actually the main idea of the passage. They are the means to accomplishing this main idea, the completion of Paul's joy. And so as we keep seeing in this letter, you can't go very far without getting back to joy. Joy, which we have defined not as kind of effusive, bubbly, kind of excited about uh, things. That's not me. Uh, but joy as the deep, down, settled conviction that all is well. Or as we've seen, been singing, all is well. All will be well. All must be well. Right? Joy is this abiding and driving gladness and contentment and satisfaction in all things and in all circumstances because all I have is Christ. And that's enough. Because to live is Christ, Paul has said. And if to live is Christ, then even to die is gain because Paul knows that that's what gets him to Christ. And Paul knows that that is far better But remember, when we looked at this, Paul wants to depart and be with Christ, but he lands on not departing and remaining instead. Why? We'll look back at verse 25 of chapter 1. He decides he's going to stay for their progress and joy in the faith. Paul is willing to give up being with Christ sooner rather than later, if that means he can serve the Philippians by seeking Their joy and their contentment and their satisfaction in Christ. And so now here he's saying, return the favor. Verse 2, complete my joy. So Paul's not asking them to do anything that he's not himself doing for them. His desire for them is joy. Well, why wouldn't his desire for himself also be joy? But the big difference is in what Paul rejoices in. We tend to rejoice in the silliest of things and what end up often being the most selfish of things. We rejoice that we can get over 100 likes or thumbs up or smiley faces or check marks or whatever the emoji of affirmation is on social media these days. We rejoice that someone comments that we look cute. In our picture, we rejoice over our team doing well. We rejoice over our enemy doing poorly. We rejoice over cookies and Netflix and clothes and on and on and on. I could go listing the things that most of us use to pursue and find joy in. Paul seeks and finds his joy in others, in the church. And he seeks and he finds his joy in them, seeking and finding their joy in Jesus. You see, he's not selfishly asking them to do something for him. He's asking them to do the one thing that he knows will bring them the most joy because he knows that Jesus is the most Joy, And he knows that a group of Christians gathered together, joyful in Jesus, will be a group of Christians united together, humbly loving and serving one another, which will then only serve uh, in them finding more joy in Jesus. So yes, Paul wants them to complete his joy, but his joy is in Jesus. And his joy is in them finding joy in Jesus. And so Paul... And so unlike so many of us, does everything that he does to the glory of God. And he does that in large part by seeking the good of the people of God. That's what a manner of life worthy of the gospel is. A Christ-centered life that we've seen leads to a people of Christ-centered life. You can't love Christ and not love the church. So Paul himself is doing the very thing he's about to command them to do in verses 3 and 4. Complete my joy. This is true gospel joy. That's where Paul seeks and finds it. Where do you seek and find joy? Honestly, we're going to the city today. We're going to get ice cream. I'm really excited about ice cream. I love it. Ice cream. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to find some joy in that. Mets, walk off Homer, I think in the 13th um, last night. Joy. I'm excited uh, about that. Right. These aren't bad things, but these are not ultimate things. Where do you find the most joy? Let's be honest. How foreign to you is this concept of finding the most joy in others finding the most joy in Jesus? Do you see how counter cultural this is? How counter self this is? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Well, here he's doing the very thing that Christ did seeking and serving the good of others. He's finding his joy in the joy of others. What about you? Where's your joy? Where does it come from? Are you like Paul, who is like Christ? In this area. Guys, this is one of the main ideas of the whole letter. Joy is not found in the things that you think that it is found. That's why you may be miserable. That's why all the most rich and famous and giant air quotes successful people in Hollywood are also miserable. Because they've already gotten all the things in which our world says that joy is found. And guess what? They still haven't yet found the joy. So there's, there's nothing left. But this is so different. But, and it's so beautiful. When, when rightly understood and experienced, what you're looking for, whatever you want to call it, identity, meaning, purpose, joy, it's found only in a person. a person who gave himself up to serve other persons, which turns out to then be the very thing that we were created for, to be outward, other-focused, because that's what God is like, because that's what Christ is like, and we were designed in his image to be like him. So when you do it and seek your joy only in yourself, you're doing it wrong and you're not working accordance with your design. And that's why you're miserable. You are designed to be oriented to Him which then turns you outward and to be oriented to others. This is joy. It sounds crazy to us because it's the opposite of the world. Be yourself. Uh, treat yourself. Follow your heart. Uh, be your true self. All self, self, self. Um, Paul says, no, no, no others man is this really where joy and meaning and purpose are found how in the world can we get it's such a joy it's so counterintuitive how in the world does this happen point number two Paul's joy is a result of Christ's gospel the answer is verse verse one look at verse one again so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy stop there now listen this is not poetry but this is beautifully written and structured prose this is masterful writing that makes Paul's point uh, brilliantly and beautifully this is the motivation this is the why of this other centered joy that delights in the unity and humility of the people of god and it starts with that If the second word of verse one, but the ESP actually obscures this a little bit. I don't love what the ESP did here in the Greek. There are actually four ifs. Listen, listen, listen to the new American standard of verse one. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any affection and compassion. There's four ifs that are then going to lead to the then of verse 2. So we've got got an implicit if-then statement here. Paul is saying, if these things are true, then these are the things that follow. Let me remind you of what is true. Verse 1. Let me remind you of all that you have in Christ, and then let me remind you of how you should live in light of all that. Verse 2. If. But listen. Listen. Not if, as if, there was any sort of question. Paul is not asking. Paul is stating. Uh, The Greek word translated here could also be translated since or because. These are facts rhetorically stated to drive home Paul's point. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that that disaster of a Mets game we tried to go to a few weeks ago. So it would be like, were I saying, if it's going to take forever to get the girls ready, if the trains are going to be super packed and super delayed, if it takes absurd amounts of time for them to just check bags and tickets and get people in the gates, if it takes 15 minutes to get to your affordable seats all the way at the top in left field. I'm not asking if these things are true. They are true. They will happen. They are guaranteed. If all of that, then complete my joy by being of a patient mind and leaving super early next time. (laughs) But even more guaranteed than New York City train delays are these four things in verse 1. These are not ifs. These are fixed and final and sure realities for the Christian. Know these Rest in these. Don't forget these. First one, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Well, is there? Of course there is. I remember Paul doesn't ever use the term Christian. Paul's favorite description for a disciple of Jesus is one who is in Christ as he does Here To be in Christ is to be so intimately united with him that we share, we participate, we fellowship in all of the benefits that Christ has gained for us. This phrase is referring to our union with Christ and the limitless encouragement that comes from that. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been specifically chosen in Christ. Christ before time even began. You know, we don't choose Him, He chooses us, and there is wonderful encouragement in that fact. For for some of you, your tendency to struggle and lack of assurance is part, in part, because you lack a robust understanding and conviction of the sovereignty and election of God. You still think you had something to do with your salvation. You still think it was your choice. And you know yourself, like I know myself. You know how weak and fickle you are. So you sometimes wonder, well, what if if I change my mind? Guess what? That's not how this works. Go spend some time meditating on Ephesians chapter one and the great encouragement that if you are in Christ before the world existed, before time began in love, He predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Not your will. What encouragement. That we were known, we were loved, and we were chosen by God before everything even began. That's encouragement. But what about Romans 5, verse 6? While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verses 8 through 10, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Talk about encouragement. Uh, That passage describes us, weak, sinners, enemies of God. That's the opposite of encouragement. But that's who we were. That's who everyone is apart from Christ. Which means what? Well, that means that everyone is under and awaiting and deserving the wrath of God. Justice demands that crimes must be punished. Sin is a crime against God. And the wages of sin is death but God. This is the gospel. Romans 5. We deserve to die. Christ dies for us. He justifies us. He declares us right and right with God. He saves us from the wrath that we deserve by taking the wrath that we deserve. His death in our place, paying our death debt, reconciled, returned, reunites us with the God we were formerly enemies of. And now, We are sons and daughters of God. Now we are forgiven. Now, instead of eternal death, we have eternal life and fellowship and relationship with the God who made us for himself. Is there any encouragement in Christ? There is infinite encouragement in Christ. Our problem is that we don't see it and we don't delight in it. Our problem is that we get so caught up in the world and the things of the world that we are blind to these eternal realities that we were dead, that we were deserving the wrath of God. But that in Christ, we can live and be in fellowship with God, encouragement in Christ. But in case that's not enough for you, Paul keeps going. Second one, he says, if any comfort from love. Now, what exactly is he talking about there? Good question. There's some debate. Not entirely sure. Some people disagree over some of the specifics of these phrases. But look ahead to the next phrase after. Look at the next one. The next one says, any participation in the Spirit. So, first one, Christ the Son. Third one, the Spirit. Second one, unspecified. And so I think. That along with many others, that the fact that we have Son and Spirit surrounding this second phrase means that Paul expects us to understand him as saying any comfort from the Father's love. For example, there's a similar passage about unity in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul roots his call there in unity in the Trinity. He says in 4.1, I urge you to walk in a manner of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. Sound familiar? Uh, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Sound familiar? But we're getting there. Unity is really important to Paul. But he encourages them to do this by pointing them to each person of the Trinity's investment and involvement in them. In verse 4, he says there is one Spirit. In verse 5, he says there is one Lord. And then in verse 6, he says there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so it is most likely that Paul's if statements here in Philippians 2 are also Trinitarian. Is there any comfort from the love of the Father? Of course there is. But this one's a good reminder because of how we often tend to draw this ridiculous divide between God the Father and God the Son. We sometimes think of the Father as the strict And the mean one, he's the Old Testament God, that Jesus, he's the nice, easygoing one. He's gentle and kind. He's the New Testament one. Come to rescue us from the mean, grumpy Old Testament one. Oh, God, that couldn't be more wrong. It is the love of the Father. That sets this whole thing in motion. It is because he is both holy, therefore he cannot abide sin, and loving, that he then sends Jesus to come and pay the penalty for that sin, so that we can then be forgiven and restored to God. There is great comfort from the love of God our Father. In fact, the Father so loved you that he was willing to sacrifice the thing most valuable to him the Son. To save you. That's comforting. 2 Corinthians 1:3 calls him the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Is there any comfort from the love of the Father? There is infinite comfort in the love of the Father. Third one, he says: if there is any participation in the Spirit, there's that word again: participation. Koinonia in the Greek. So the King James says, is there any fellowship of the Spirit? But we've been talking about, and we often think about koinonia, fellowship, community, in horizontal terms with one another. That's what we're driving at. We're getting there next week. The command in verse 2 is to such a horizontal fellowship, a united fellowship. We're praying desperately that God would create that in and among us here at Woodside. But that's not what he's talking about here in this third phrase. This is not about a participation with one another that is created by the Spirit, but this is about participation in the Spirit Himself. As we've been saying, it is our union with Christ that then creates our communion with the people of Christ. It is our vertical koinonia that then creates our horizontal koinonia. Here we are talking about that vertical Koinonia, that wonderful union with Christ and that union with Christ is created in and by the Spirit. We have another Trinitarian example of this in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Listen to this one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. Again, there's the Father again directly connected to love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, all three, fellowship with the Spirit. This is our communion with and in the Spirit. Remember how Jesus describes the Spirit in John 14 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper or another comforter. You know what the word is that Jesus uses there to describe the Holy Spirit? It's the same word that we've already looked at in the beginning of verse 1. It's the same word that is encouragement. We've already seen the infinite encouragement encouragement to be found in Christ, but there's another encourager. There's another one who is like Christ. There is the Holy Spirit who is also a comforter and as we participate in him he brings that encouragement of jesus christ to bear on our souls in a very real and personal and intimate way so is there any participation in the spirit there's infinite participation in the spirit christian do you know that as you participate in the spirit the spirit of god himself dwells in you. And this is at the very heart of the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 27, God specifically says, I will put my spirit within you. Okay, neat. That's great. Uh, what will that do? He keeps going. I will put my spirit within you and, this is cool, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen. If you understand that, there are a few things more encouraging than that verse. We know that God is holy. We know that we must be holy to be in relationship with him. We know that without holiness, no one will see the Lord, as we just studied in Hebrews uh, 12. Uh, we know that to love Jesus is to obey Jesus, and to obey Jesus is to keep his commandments you just don't know the Lord if you're not somehow, by the grace of God, growing in holiness and obedience. And all this could be terrifying because we know our weakness and we know our faithfulness and we know our struggle with obedience. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Christian, do you understand what encouragement you have in this promise? And in this participation in the spirit, God says, I have put my spirit within you in part to cause you to walk in my statutes. Yeah, there are conditions God provides for and meets the conditions himself. We're going to look at this in great detail. When we get to verses 12 and 13, I'm very excited about verses 12 and 13. We're going to work this out in great detail. But the good news is that God doesn't leave us to ourselves and say, all right, I hope you get all this right. He gives us his spirit and promises himself to work out the obedience and the holiness required in us. It's the spirit in us working to will for God's God's good pleasure. First Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Oh, wonderful. Romans 8. Just know Romans 8, verse 9. Christian, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. What does that mean? What kind of spirit is this? Verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God, and if we're children of God, we're also then heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Goodness! Is there any participation in the spirit? Co-heirs with Christ because of the Spirit. You should memorize and meditate and marinate on those verses. If you are in Christ and the Spirit is in you and that Spirit is the Spirit of adoption and that means that you are a child of God and that means that God Himself, the Creator and King of the universe is your Father and not a poor excuse for a father, not a wildly imperfect father like I am for my daughters, but a perfect Father of perfect encouragement and love and comfort, and in Christ you are his child and heir, a co heir with Christ. Talk about encouragement. Again, our problem is that we don't really believe these things, or we kind of do, but we don't really understand them, so we don't really value them as we do. We're obsessively concerned with such foolish and trivial things, while right here we have the most wonderfully life-altering and encouraging truth that we have fellowship with the Spirit of God himself. Do you know that? Do you delight in that? Do you live in light of that? And then fourth and finally, summing it all up, if there is any affection, and sympathy. We've already seen the infinite encouragement we have in Christ, the infinite comfort from the love of the Father, the infinite fellowship in the Spirit. All that comes together in the infinite affection and sympathy of our great God, three in one, perfectly united in the love and pursuit of His people. If there is any affection and sympathy in God, Infinite affection and sympathy in God. That word of sympathy can also be translated comfort. The King James translates it mercy. You know, Psalm 103 is my favorite Psalm, uh, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As that's amazing. There's nothing more beautiful than a good, gentle, compassionate father caring lovingly for his children. Single ladies, this is the thing that you're looking for. Is this guy, does he love children? And is he good with them? And does he care for them? And is he gentle with them? A good, compassionate father caring for his little children is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Especially when it's little girls. Especially, because I'm biased. but can you believe that the Lord, all caps Lord, Yahweh, creator king of all that exists, chooses that metaphor to describe what he is like with us? For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust, and so he is gentle and he is kind. And he is compassionate. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus, the Son of God, who sustains all of reality, says he is gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew twelve twenty, quoting Isaiah forty two: "A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, quench." Wow, listen, if you're a bruised reed, and you are, I am. Go read Richard Sibbs, the bruised. Read to get one of the most beautiful descriptions ever uh, of this compassionate gentleness of our loving God. And he has great affection for us. Remember this word? If you read the King James, it said, is there any bowels and mercy? Bowels. What? Remember, the, the ancients were smarter than us. They understood that you don't physically feel things in your heart. Your physical heart is just an organ that pumps Blood and scripture, the heart, the mind, the soul are all synonyms that refer to who we truly are, who we are at our core, our spiritual person. There, I was reading a book this morning talking about head knowledge and heart knowledge. I hate that so much. There is no mind heart distinction in scripture. It's not there. It's all one. There's knowledge and then there's the knowledge by the grace of God that is combined with faith or not combined with Faith. That's the distinction that scripture draws. And so we're all one. We are bodies and minds. And so when we feel deeply in our minds or our heart or whatever you want to call it, we feel it physically in our guts. And so the Greek used this word guts, or the bowels, to, to describe the strongest possible deep, deep affection. This deep gut level affection is what God has For his children, for you, if you are his. And remember, Paul's already used this word up in chapter one, verse eight, where Paul himself yearns for the Philippians with all the affections, with the guts. Paul feels great affections for the Philippians. But remember what we said a few weeks ago. Look at one eight again. This is really significant. Look at this. He yearns for them with the great affection Of Christ. It's not just Paul's affection. It's Christ's affection. Paul's affection is because of Christ. In a sense, it is Christ's affection. So Paul's joy is because of Christ's joy. And in a very real sense, it literally is Christ's joy, which is our last point. Though, as always, we're short on time. But, But do you see what Paul is doing here? You see it. This verse is so important. I, I so just wanted to jump to verses 3 through 4. And I just kept looking at verse 1. And I couldn't do it. Do You see, everything that follows depends upon this. I get to this passage and I want to jump straight to the commands of 3 and 4. I'm an arrogant, selfish jerk. I know that pride is a great struggle for me. So I jump straight to the commands. Count others more significant than myself. Look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, now do it. And then I sputter, and I struggle, and I fail to do it. And it's because I so quickly skip over the first verse to get to verses 3 and 4. Now, don't hear me wrong. Let's be clear. The commands are good. The commands are so good. In our command-averse culture, even our command-averse Christian culture these days, let's not forget 1 John 5, 3. It's such an important verse today. His commands are not burdensome. The law is summed up in love. The law is all about love. God commands because he loves us and he seeks our good for us. That's what love does. And his commandments are designed toward that end. So the commands are good. We're going to spend a whole sermon on them next week. But the commands of God divorced from the grace of God are infinitely burdensome. The commands of God divorced from the person of Christ are infinitely burdensome. That's why verse one is so important. And that's why understanding this passage in its entirety is so important because this is one of the best passages, uh, one of the best passages in all of scripture is coming up next. The Christ hymn of verses five through 11 is just kind of where just some of the glory of the gospel just shines forth in one of those extra brilliant places. We're just gonna step back and stare at who Christ is and what he's done. God reveals his majestic glory in meekness and in weakness. uh, The wonderful gospel of God coming to man, by becoming man, to die for man, so that he could bring man back to God. So Paul says, do these things, be united, be humble, but then he tells us how it's possible. He connects it directly to Christ. The powers in Christ Not in you. Yes, do these things, but know that you can only do these things because of all the amazing things that Christ has first done for you and in you. Now, resting in that, you can do these unity and humility things, but it's only the grace of God doing them through you. So it's the gospel and the grace of God that makes the commands of God possible. And so it's brilliant how Paul sets this up, but we miss it because we fly straight to the commands. Preachers have a tendency to fly straight to these things. You're terrible. Do better. Sometimes they'll even quote Nike. Just do it. No, okay? Just do it. Divorced from it's already been done is the worst possible news. And so Paul, knowing this, knowing that not only is the gospel the power of God for salvation, but for everything, he takes these important and good commands and he sandwiches them on both ends with gospel goodness. Verse 1, don't forget the infinitely wonderful benefits you already have in Christ. Verses 5 through 11, don't forget the Christ who secured those infinitely wonderful benefits by making himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then, in light of all that, complete my joy by being humbly united together as a reflection of and in gratitude to the amazing grace of god who's already done everything for you including sharing with you his very own joy i'll finally stop with this i wonder if you were wondering why we read john 15. look there real quickly if you'd like page 901 let's close with this last thing 901 john 15. we looked briefly at paul's joy we looked more at Christ's gospel than the wonderful blessings that it contains. Look at John 15, 11. Look at verse 11. I just never had really seen this, and it just hit me in the face this week, so I had to use it. John 15 is a wonderful passage. We love it. We tend to focus on, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Wonderful truths, of course. But we, or at least I, have never really paid much attention to verse 11. Verse 11 is amazing. I don't know how I hadn't seen this. Look hard at what Jesus says. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. So Jesus teaches. Jesus gives us his word. Why? For what purpose? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So it's the word and it's the revelation through that word to us of the person and work of Jesus Christ that brings joy. That's wonderful. That's true. So I emphasize the word joy, but that's not what I want to look at. Listen to it again as I emphasize it differently. This is neat. These words, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your own joy may be full. You see that? That pronoun is really, really interesting. He doesn't just teach us so that we may have joy. Man, that would be good enough in and of itself. But he goes unimaginably and infinitely over and above. He teaches us so that his joy may be in us. The very perfect joy of the very perfect Son of God, ours. He says the same thing in John 17, verse 13, praying to the Father in the high priestly prayer. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have, not joy, joy, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, he wants you to have and know the very joy of Jesus himself. A joy in the glory that he shared with the Father before anything else existed. Perfect joy in the perfect fellowship in the perfect being. God existing eternally and perfectly in communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Perfect joy, word failing, time failing joy. Jesus wants his own joy for you and in you. That's the motivation for what is to come next week. Jesus, God the Son, wants you to know and experience his very own joy. A perfect, unhindered, unfading, never ending, all fulfilling, life giving, always loving, ever delighting joy. His joy. God's joy. And He says, according to this, that that can be ours. I know that, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. That's what eternity is. That's glory. Joy unimaginable. Joy that makes all of the things that you most love and most pursue and are most convinced that you must have, it makes all of that look like refuse and waste and trash compared to what is offered to us in Christ. Listen to this line from uh, the great Augustine in his confessions. This is what Augustine said. Uh, Augustine wasn't (coughs) converted until later in life. Augustine loved the ladies. He lived a pretty immoral life up until his 30s. Look at what he writes. He says, how sweet all at once. He, he writes, this, this whole book is written as a prayer to God. So he's talking to God. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of all those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Man, I love that. What do you fear to lose? What, what are you worried about having to give up or sacrifice? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys for which I had once feared to lose. You. Drove them from me, you who are the true and sovereign joy. You drove them from me, and you took their place. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Fruitless joys, driven out by true sovereign joy, by Jesus Himself. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Man. Of course, there is infinite encouragement, eternal encouragement. And Paul wants you to know it now. And then he wants you to delight in it. And then he wants you to live in light of it. And that's how you can complete Paul's joy. That's how you can find joy in yourself. And that is how we can be united in humility. It all starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which offers us Everything, including the joy of Jesus Himself, if you would bow with me, let's close. I would a word to prayer. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. Father, my words cannot come close to doing justice to Your Word. And so we ask now again that by Your Spirit that You would do Your work in our hearts. Father, I pray that that two-edged nature of your word now would cut and divide and reveal. I pray that it would encourage and strengthen and edify and fortify, and I pray that it would do all of these things by pointing us uh, to the wondrous beauty uh, of Jesus Christ. Father, give us eyes to see it. We are so blind uh, to eternal things because we are so caught up by uh, the things of this world. Father, set our eyes. On the things above as we leave this place help us to run our race looking to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith who is the beginning and end who is everything father we pray and ask father we struggle with the joy sometimes we are discouraged sometimes there is great discomfort sometimes point us to Jesus we thank you for your faithfulness uh, to us we thank you that you um, do everything that you promised to do and that you will complete that good work that you have begun in us. And so we trust you to do that. We cling to you uh, to do that and ask that you would give us great desire and delight in you as you do your work in us. And we ask, we pray all of this only in the name of Jesus. Amen.